is the Doing Diversity in Writing podcast, the show where we as authors explore the better practices of writing inclusively, whether that be in terms of race, gender, ethnicity, class, sexuality, ability, and so on. Why are we here? To bring more depth and breadth to the characters in our fiction and represent them in the best way possible. My name is Bethany A. Tucker, and with me each week is my co-host, Marielle S. Smith. Ready? Let's dive in. It's been a month since we last recorded. How are you doing? Hey, Bethany. I'm okay. I'm really tired because I adopted three kittens. Total cat mom. Total cat I'm mom. A total cat. And I'm also fostering three others. They're three siblings um, who still need to find a home. And they're all sick right now. So I'm cleaning the house like around the clock. But they're really adorable. And They are. And- they are. Yes. I might make you put um, a picture of them and you writing, even working on this episode with the cats on our page for everyone to see because it's amazing. Oh, that was last night. Yeah. If you follow me on Instagram, you have seen my cats um, and you know how adorable they are. But yeah, because that's why All I right. post like my cat stuff mostly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am currently in the middle of a thunderstorm. I am seeing lightning outside my window and I'm hearing rolling through my floor. So crossing our fingers, I'm going to just say that we have some nice, strong energy coming down as we record today. (laughs) I kind of, I both love and hate thunderstorms. Anyway, so let's get started because we have so much to cover today. Yes. Um, So the topic of today's episode is writing women we want to read. So writing women or really female characters of all ages, that's what we're going to talk about. And oh my gosh, Marielle, we really did have to go and make this a two-part episode. And I was afraid it was about to become a three-part, but we just left some things for other episodes in the future. (laughs) I'm not even going to talk about how long I was writing on this or you. So it's a two-parter, everyone. You'll get half this month and then half at the next, at the start of the next month so that we don't go insane because this really took us so long to put together and really think through all the material that's out there. Yeah. But I have to say working on this, honestly, there was no way it was going to be short. There really wasn't. And I'm pretty happy with the long form we switched to before we tackled this topic. I feel that we can really bring all of our experiences and I was able to track down my resources and really show up better for everyone. So I'm glad we switched to long form for this topic. I mean, I, I will admit that um, I wasn't sure about this format for the podcast at first, but I, I do absolutely love that we can dive really deep. And the thing, like you said, like there's so much we don't even touch upon and we'll save that for future episodes. But we can dive really deep already and without inviting burnout, which I think we're both a little bit prone to. I mean, I'm a lot prone to it. And I I think with it regularly. Yes. Trying to reform, but I'm still flirting with it. Yes. Same. Like I have a really bad relationship with it. And, you know, it wasn't planned that we were going to talk about this now, but it's very fitting that we are recording this episode as the Supreme Court of the U.S. assaults women everywhere. So I think, yeah, it's very timely. Yeah, it is. And I could deliver a 15 minute monologue about that and why literature is important and relevant. But I think if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that. And um, it came up again and again in our research. So we'll probably yeah. have to just. Say I don't think it's going to be a 50. I think it's going to be a filibuster if you start talking. <laughs> so moving on, <laughs> I will say that as we started working on this episode, I struggled a little. I often do not like women characters written by women. I read a lot. So when I say often, I mean, doesn't mean like every other one I don't like, but it's this not liking the way women characters are written is like the second or third most important reason I've almost entirely stopped reading hetero romances. The first reason being that the male leads in most of the books I tried are so often assholes that I end up hating and 
hating them and I happen to like men don't really want to walk around feeling like I'm low-key hating all the men around me which these books make me feel like half the time so I just don't read them because I happen to like men I have two wonderful men in my life but that's another episode um the second or third reason are the love triangles uh and the ridiculous reasons that are used to force tension but I digress I often hate female representation by women too. And that's because women writers have, just as much as male writers have, internalized ideas and dogmas and written them out, repeated them, that they picked up from the literary canon before them. And sometimes women characters are just characters I don't jive with. And that's okay. They can be perfectly fine. And then I personally just don't like them. And that's not what we're talking today. We all have our likes and our don't likes. We're really talking about doing things better. Yes, because I mean, this is where I will agree with you, right? Like there will always be things that we like and don't like. Uh, there's no accounting for taste. But, and I do know people are going to disagree with us here because, you know, some of us enjoy reading and writing like books that have like the damsel in distress or like the, uh, the opposite, like the powerhouse of a woman who doesn't need anyone. And books with those characters do sometimes sell really well, despite being exceptionally harmful to women. But there are definitely ways of writing that I feel, and I know you agree with me, that we should just, we should all avoid those, right? Precisely because they perpetuate really harmful stereotypes and patterns and societal structures. I mean, we could have a whole false consciousness debate about this, which is always extremely tricky. But I think the key is that we don't want to tell anyone what they can or cannot like. What we're focusing on today is that some of those things that you like could be written better without being to the detriment of anyone. Yeah. Like this is the stuff we want to avoid in our writing. So it's not so much about what you're, what you're writing, but how you're writing it. It's not necessarily about the topics you bring in, but how do you represent these topics or these characters or relationships, etc. Exactly. Yeah, you can write anything either well or badly. And what we consider bad writing is usually writing that comes from like an unexamined place or writing that intentionally or unintentionally pushes narratives that feed into destructive ideas. Yes. And it is true, kind of sucky, that some of these ways of writing topics, because I do believe we can write about anything. There are ways about writing some things that is not helpful, even harmful, and it does keep selling. It's safe and comfortable for us, for readers, for writers who haven't yet started to examine our habits and our beliefs. And I think both you and I, Mariel, we've talked about having to examine those things ourselves. That's a journey that we're not going to rehash here, but it is one that we all have to take. And we need to acknowledge the less than laudably written female characters can and do appear in books that are loved, books that I've loved. So Let's not dilly-dally. Let's get straight into this. We're going to hit a lot of topics today and the next episode as well. So we're going to start with how. How often women show up, where they show up, and how they show up. That's our basic framework. And yes, we will be talking about what not to do. But we're also going to focus a lot on what to do. Exactly. I can't stress how important it is in these spaces where we're trying to learn and create or make change, that just yelling at people that something is wrong is not the final solution. It's barely the first step. It, it can be a good stop sign and we absolutely need those sometimes, but we also need to find some green lights on these roads of creating and living so that we're bringing, we're bringing everyone forward. We're figuring out where to go. So Marielle, you want to jump in with our first area on how often women show up? Sure, I'm just gonna, because we're gonna do a lot of numbers, I'm just gonna crack my knuckles. And uh... <laughs> so, this is a changing landscape in literature, which is a good thing, right? And we don't necessarily have a ton of data, and the data also changes depending on genre. But we did find some really interesting numbers, and what we do know is that it is estimated that women by 70 to 80 percent of fiction sold in the US. Women are also four times more likely to say that they read over 50 books per year. So according to YouGov, and we're going to include all of these links in the show notes, uh, YouGov is an international research data and analytics group headquartered in London. 
So that's 9% of the women that they surveyed. So 9% of the women surveyed read more than 50 books a year. Yes, and so that is and that is four times more yeah. than the men's. Yeah. 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 No, it's women are a really, really significant chunk of the buying population in pretty much all countries, but the US was the one we got more concrete numbers for. Yeah, I mean, women are generally ferocious read. Not not necessarily generally, but of all the read of all the ferocious readers I know, 99% are women. Yeah, I I am in Facebook groups with multiple women who read one to two books a day. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So let me just say, these numbers make sense to me in a lot of ways. I'd argue that it is socialized, not bioengineered, that women read so much, but that's another topic. That said, the weight of the literary canon behind us has a complex history. I dug around for some data, and here's what I found. In children literature published in the U.S. throughout the 20th century, according to a study, to the study Gender in the 20th Century Children's Books, books with male central figures, both human and animal, outrank those with female central characters by really strong margins. We're talking, for example, the Golden Series books had a three to one male character, had a 3.2 male character leads to every one female character lead. So more than three male characters appeared for every one female character that appeared as a lead in one of their book series. But, and this is important, that's overall, the ratio actually changes over the hundred years, year by year. Um, and it actually shadows, like tracks shadows, feminist waves that happened over that hundred year period. Mm, which makes sense, right? Yeah. And, you know, this matters because we grew up on books published at these ratios. And that still does affect us when we sit down and imagine characters to write. Of course, where women show up depends very much on genre as well. I don't have any specific numbers for that, but there are many female characters and protagonists in genres like romance, uh, chiclet, cozy mystery, like those are very female heavy uh, genres. And at the same time, and like I said, like, the, like we said, like the, the, the landscape is changing. The number of female protagonists in fantasy and sci-fi is also is absolutely increasing in the right in, in this moment, and I can't help but wonder whether we have independent authors to thank for that. You know, because if you publish independently, you aren't limited by any gatekeepers of traditional publishing telling you what you can and cannot write based on what they think will sell, which is based on you know decades and decades of tradition, traditions and writing. Yeah. So I don't get that same sense of change when I think about genres like hard mysteries or thrillers, but then that's also not a genre I read a lot in. Um, so like, I mean, I don't have actual numbers. So this is just based on what I've been observing. Um, okay. But we do have some other numbers. Yes, I was just, I was just looking, I was looking at my nose, like, where are these numbers? Um, according to the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film, women had 34% of the speaking roles in film for the year 2021 for films released in the United States. And the percentage of films featuring female protagonists fell from the previous two years to 29%. Yeah, I think it had been 31%. So yeah, it dropped. There's some silver lining here though. The number of black female roles increased from 13.2 in 2020 to 16.4 in 2021. Asian and American, uh, Asian and Asian American female roles increased from 5.7 to 10%, and Latina roles increased from 5.7 to 12.8. Yeah, so that is so. We we are definitely changing. Um, things are definitely changing. Yeah. Yeah. But. And this will inform part of our next se uh, section. There are some gender stereotypes here, you know, hidden beneath the numbers. Female characters were on average younger than their male counterparts and their marriage status was considered something the audience should know. And their goals and the storylines were more likely to be focused on something personal than on something professional. I think it's safe to infer that we are seeing fewer female leads versus male leads still, as it has been for hundreds of years, as shown through the data these two research reports cover. So between the two research reports, we're kind of looking over the last 120 years. 
And as always, that report in full is available and we will link, uh, link to it in the show notes. So I'm gonna bring in a little bit different perspective. On March 17th, 1997, um, Trip Gabriel wrote in the New York Times that seven out of 10 of the top selling hardcovers at the time on the Times list featured female lead protagonists. And Gabriel suggested that male authors should make sure that they are writing with a female audience in mind because of this. So, and some people have pointed back to the 90s and articles like this to say, oh, it isn't a problem anymore. We started talking about this years ago. Let's, let's move on. Well, aside that those were the numbers in 1997, and we have been having quite a backlash since then, um, as I don't want to go into US yeah. right this second, but you know, and that's not the only thing, like it's a worldwide thing. It's really not that straightforward, is it? Researchers using the Gutenberg Project database, they use a collection of 3,000 books from adventure and science fiction to mystery and romance to analyze gender representations. And their findings were as follows. Men appeared across the entire set, so including romance, at a four to one ratio to women, meaning that there were four male mentions for every female mention. That's not just male leads. That's just any character appearing in any of the books that were randomly selected. Yes, out so of that's the... not... yes. but for yeah. me, it's like the, the, they're, they're, they're set, right? They're, they're data. Mm-hmm included romance <laughs> and it's still four to one yes so that is just that just makes me really sad and it just goes to show that we have i think we are on the way but we still have a long way to go especially since these sets of classics are still what's taught primarily in schools even in universities like As. it's it's not in our notes, but this one female professor at a university got backlash because she labeled her class male authors of a certain time period. And she didn't actually change anything in the class. She just yeah, acknowledged that there were no women in it. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm gonna quote from an article that appeared in Book Riot because I think the author Kelly Jensen says it so well, I didn't want to paraphrase her. She says, and I quote, It's hard not to see how the influence of growing up in a culture that worships the quote classics, typically books by white men, sets the standards for what a preferred character type is. Ingrained sexism is another likely explanation for why it is women are more comfortable writing male characters, while male writers who write female protagonists do so at a far lower percentage, end quote. That entire article is so interesting and there's a lot more numbers in it that we don't have time to cover. Anyone who's listening, I do encourage you to read it. The reason we bring this up, and we've said this before, is that the literary canon of facts is as we write. And again, I'm also going to quote this time from a 2021 article by Walker Kaplan. According to the Times, researchers analyzed over 100,000 entries submitted to a 2019 story writing competition hosted by BBC Radio 2 and Oxford University Press, written by children ages 5 to 13. The contest placed no restriction on form or content other than length, under 500 words. They discovered that almost 70% of the characters created by five-year-old girls were female. But that percentage dropped to 45% by the time girls reached 13. Meanwhile, the proportion of male characters in stories written by boys remained constant at around 85% from ages 5 to 13, end of quote. I found this in my own work and only now in my 30s am I working to bring more female characters into my writing. I guess it started in my later 20s, but it, it's uh, been a work. I have been successful, but it requires some acute awareness and a certain amount of reformatting my brain. Walker's article finishes with a reference to what we've talked about with the statistics around children's books in the 20th century, which is that there is a clear dominance of male names in children's books, and that girls are literally reading more about men and spending more time in an androcentric world with their fiction. Girls, at least, who read are spending a lot more time in the bodies and minds of men. And that in turn appears to be shaping what they write and how they write it, even now, since this study was carried out with data from 2019. And these books, they inform how we see ourselves, how we see our roles in society, how we see ourselves in relation to boys and men, 
even how we see ourselves in relation to other women. So it's really important to correct these numbers because yes, despite how well romance books are selling, which are typically written by women, by women and for women, there's real hard evidence that women are not represented in literature and film on parody with how they show up in real life. In case anyone needed to have it proven that, hey, we still need to be thinking in terms of male and female and other genders for who we are choosing to include as we write, there's some data for you. And we haven't even gone into supporting roles and the incidental speaking roles. And that number, those numbers are actually exist out there to look at. And they just continue the trends that we've been talking about. Yeah. So let's talk a little about impact and perception of women showing up and then circle back to why women aren't showing up as often, because I think the two are linked, like extremely closely linked. I, I agree. So yes, how do women show up in fiction? Well, as we already touched on when we were talking about the statistics about women in film from 2021, uh, we already know that they are positioned differently from men um, statistically. And the fact that lead women in film are often working towards personal goals rather than professional goals isn't necessarily bad in and of itself. I would say, hey, maybe we should let men be working towards happiness or satisfaction in their personal lives more often. But that's for our next set of episodes when we talk about writing men. The point here is that we have positioned women overall in literature to be less likely to show up as a professional. And again, like we see changes here, right? Like one could argue, for example, that Moana's or Vayana's, depending on where you are in the world, her goal in the recent Disney film is professional in terms of, you know, leading her tribe. But there is no real delineation in her depicted culture between taking care of the tribe, personal life and professional life, like it's all rolled into one. And the same dichotomy exists with the Frozen film duology and also the Black Widow film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like family and role in society are intrinsically linked for all of these characters. Which I actually really appreciate. Here's a take that I haven't really found anyone talking about, but a lot of comment sections and conversations with one of my male partners sort of nudged me in the direction of thinking about this till it came together. My male partner specifically said, quote, I like competent female protagonists, end quote, and went on to name Laura Croft from Tomb Raider and a slew of characters from the Rooster Teeth Studios, like pretty much all the female characters in the anime series Ruby, which if you haven't seen it, I really, really recommend it. And I found plenty of guys on Reddit streams talking about how much they actually liked both the books and the films of Hunger Games and admired Katniss. But then I ran across this comment where a guy said, I just fit in the skin better of a male protagonist. And this was coming from a guy who was really supportive of female authors and female-led books and tries to read them. What if, what if we actually have a content gap, a gap in relatable content in fiction and film of what women are doing and experiencing from what men know in their own lives, and thus they don't get as involved with women? That actually makes an awful lot of sense to me. Women spend a lot of their fiction reading, like starting from preschool or before even, reading more books about boys and men than they do about themselves. So do guys, right? Guys write about guys too. And we have a pretty good idea that the content of these films and books targeted at girls are often more personal or quote-unquote girly. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense that there is this sort of gap I think there's also some limitations that guys don't like to be stuck inside of when they're reading. I can imagine that it would be frustrated for boys to read things that women are supposed to just accept that this is how it's going to be in society. So I can understand that boys are like, I don't really really want to position myself in that character because, you know. Characters limited or not positions as competent or can't make decisions for themselves. But that should be like a huge red flag for us, right? I came across, and this just made me think of this, this image that I, that I scrolled past on Facebook the other day, and I, I think it summed up this idea so nicely. And it said, give your male kids books about girls. Give your white kids books starring POC. Give your able-bodied kids books with disabled characters. Don't think, oh, these books are important for people who need to see themselves represented. These books are important for all of us. Exactly which it's been a lot of fun to look up books for my nephew lately because I can like 
his mom's so supportive and I can buy him books with all kinds of representation. He actually gobbles it up. That's right. He's only three. I was actually once told off by an auntie for buying a particular book. So, oh, I'm, yeah. And I was like, I bought that book on purpose. So, (laughs) so taking a moment to add some numbers to biases we as authors may not even realize we have. There's this article called The Problem with Female Protagonists on Writer on Box by Joe Eberhardt. That's how I think I want to pronounce that from 2016. Eberhardt talks about their son complaining that they always read books with girls in them. And in the article, Eberhardt says that they tried really hard, you know, to be 50-50. So, you know, listening to their child, they sorted all the books on their son's shelf. And to both their surprise, only 27% of the boys' books actually had female leads. So it wasn't 50-50 and it wasn't that he was reading books with girls all the time. It was only 27 Yeah, which makes me laugh because I just read an article on YA literature bemoaning the death of books for boys in this age range, which confused me because almost all the YA I read growing up was male-centric. Right. And I can start naming off all the male lead YA books, one finger after another right now. So it's really telling how over and over again, it's found in research that people do, I mean, this is research, that people overestimate the percentage of the talking done by a woman present in a room and underestimate the percentage of talking done by men present in the same room, in the same situation. The same happens around the presence of female characters. We're just sensitive to something that we don't expect, which is the presence of a speaking female. Mm-hmm. Or anyone writes us an email about the study that showed men uh, showed that women use more words per day than men, I would also point out that women do more caretaking than men that does require more words. Go work in a preschool for an hour or two. Yes. Yeah. You learn it. You learn it then. Yeah. I think we're just more sensitive to when women show up on the page because women aren't seen as much. You know, so having a quote unquote minority status group get talked about or even just get talked about more than they are usually talked about. I think that can be unsettling because that is just not what we're used to. So if you're in a privileged position and you're used to always reading about yourself and always seeing yourself on television, if you suddenly start seeing these other characters, you're going to be like, why am I always seeing women and black people? And, you know, because that's not what you're used to. Yeah, but it even shows up that women have the same sensitivity to seeing more women. They yes. also overestimate. Like, I know, even yeah, the minorities yeah. don't expect it. No, but that is like we've talked about, like we've, we've mentioned this before, because we were raised in the same system with the same literary canon, with the same, basically the same cultural baggage mm-hmm. as, as men. So Eberhard actually gives a hilarious example it's kind of hilarious also kind of sad um of how there's this podcast called stuff you miss in history class it was getting complaints that they talked about women all the time so you know the podcast broke down i broke it all down and looked at their topics and wait for it they found that they were only doing stories focused on women 30 percent of the time not even equal to the stories they did on men, but significantly less often. And still they got complaints that they were talking about women all the time. I'm not surprised. I'm really not. This has shown up in my own personal life. And I keep having to dig through my own blind spots. So don't think that we're just yelling at men in, in this podcast today. We're, we're talking to everybody, men, women, non-binary. We all have these blind spots. Yes, like I said, because we all have, not all have the same cultural backgrounds but there's a huge overlap yeah so let's start looking at how women show up yes so essentially when we're talking about how in literature we're talking about roles you know what roles do female characters take on and what functions do they have in stories exactly so we've already talked about the concept of what roles we allow different types of characters to play in our stories and how to edit ourselves and watch ourselves for our own biases. Go back to season one, episode five, and listen to that again to review if you need to. So here today, we're just going to give you some quick pointers before diving into tropes. Yes. So basically, you know, when, you, when you're doing this work, take a quick look at what the women in your work do, what titles they have, how they show up on the page, how often what function they have for the plot 
and compare that to the man in your story and then align that to the setting of your story. Yeah, and don't forget that off-screen actions by characters count. For example, a pen pal, someone who impacted a character in the story before the book started and is mentioned repeatedly, they're still a character you're writing about. So go ahead and count them. Yeah, and I wish you didn't bear repeating, but the women in our books can have a wide variety of professions, interests, skills, talents, etc. right? They can also be villains, leaders, followers, heroes, mentors, etc. Just look around you and you know, like, actually a real life happening around you and you know this to be true and even if you don't see women in certain positions that doesn't mean you can't give them these positions in your fiction writing right write a world that you would want to live in yeah sometimes we're limited by our settings but we have a lot of power as authors to play with them and push it and there are a lot of podcasts not necessarily writing podcasts that cover issues of female roles in society and um, that is research people can do on their own. I say, let's move on to writing more, more writing specific issues because we do have a lot more to cover today. Hi everyone, it's Mariella. Are you tired of getting in your own way and not having a sustainable writing practice? Then the 52 weeks of writing, author, journal and planner is for you. 52 weeks of writing makes you plan, track, reflect on, and improve your progress and goals an entire year long. It gets you to unravel the truth about why you aren't where you want to be, and it keeps you writing through weekly thought-provoking quotes and prompts. 52 weeks of writing brings together every lesson I have learned over the past few years as a writer and a writing coach. Wary as I am of comparisonitis and unhealthy competition, I designed this undated author journal and planner to help writers develop a practice that honors their own needs and desires. If you're ready to become the writer you were always meant to be, go to mswordsmith.nl slash journal and order your copy today. Yeah, so this is where we get to talk about tropes, right? You're smirking. Yes. <laughs> Yes, and I'm counting on it. In fact, let's start with tropes we've seen enough of or basically things that writers need to think through before including. Okay, I'll start. Go for it. You are so, so ready for this. I'm not going to limit you to, I'm going to limit you to five to start with the acknowledgement that that is not enough. So give us your number one. Yeah, because we're just going to mention a couple. Yeah. Because again, this is re- this is out there, right? So don't think oh, the only tropes that exist are the ones that we've heard in, on this episode of doing the first thing in writing. There's many more. So do oh. dig for I your own. I dug up about 100 in my research and I just had to pick some. <laughs> we picked the ones that we wanted to talk about, but there are so many more. So do, do your own research as well. Okay, so these are in no particular order. Female characters with no agency. That sounds like a sore spot for you. When I'm talking about this issue with writers in a positive sense, I like to say, your characters have to make decisions. I don't even know how many times I've said that while editing. That is a good one. And I think I'm going to steal that because I tend to just say, your character has no agency, she's passive. (laughs) No, I'm not that mean. I'm not that mean. But I will say, it seems your character has very little agency here. So maybe you can make her more active. That's that's the terminology I would use. So yeah, this one is really close to my heart because I had to learn this lesson too. And I'm sure I mentioned this before somewhere on the podcast. Like, I think you have. I'm a feminist. You know, I even have a, an academic training in feminist theory and feminist literary criticism. And when I let a fellow feminist read a draft of my novel, she was like, I'm sorry, but you're like one of the most rabid feminists I know. And your protagonist has no agency. She just waits for things to happen to her. And I was like shook, right? Yeah. Yeah, but she was so right. She was so right. Uh, And I had to rewrite a lot, which I did. But it goes to show how hard it is to break those literary patterns that we read and read and read over and over again. Yes. Yes. I have a lot of compassion for it. It is hard to overcome years of training. And this, dear writers, is why we need friends who will call us on our shit. And also editors, because we all have blind spots. So what's your number two? All women want kids. I would have thought that was your number one. Well, I said in no particular order. Um, 
but yeah, this is this is this one is deeply ingrained within our society, right? That it's natural for women to want to have kids, but some don't want to have kids, uh, including me. Some can have them. Some would like to, but not in these or that circumstance. And that's okay. I think one particular trope that gets me fuming is when a female character doesn't want kids until the right guy comes along and voila, her her biological clock starts ticking and she's pregnant and happily ever after. Or when for some reason, you know, she loses like her her job, like uh, if she has like this really something that makes her lose her career right the thing that she's worked so hard to get right like let's say a corporate job or something and then she realizes you know she's actually much happier in the kitchen like blending organic baby food for her children that just (laughs) do these things happen in real life yes yes of course they do i know women who never wanted to have kids but then something changed their lives making something else click and then they realize they wanted kids after all this is fine but you have to build that into the story and not use it as some default plot point. It means that their earlier wish not to have wished not to have children is based on something that can be changed or healed. Like, why is this the right guy? What does he heal in this character that makes her feel safe enough to start a family with him? And what was wrong with this job she had? Why did she ha- why did she have this job? Why did she think that this is the job that she wanted? How unhappy was she in it already? And she was it was impossible for her to acknowledge that until she lost it. Like maybe she used it as a way to not deal with whatever made her reluctant to have kids of her own. And and just to tag on, please include like adoption as an option or fostering. And not just because sadly a woman cannot have her own kids and it's like the last resort, right? Just because you have a womb doesn't mean you have to use it to grow a child of your own. At least in the U.S., we really do have so many kids who need to be adopted. And I'm, it, it's 50-50 whether or not I come across someone who feels positively towards adoption or not. It is something hmm. in our culture that hit and miss. All right, number three, what do you have? I'm going to keep you fired up for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I have the damsel in distress trope. I mean, it is certainly dying, but it still shows up. Um Yes, someone can be less than well-prepared for a certain environment or situation. And this is something we see in books all the time, right? It's actually one of the uh, universal fantasies discussed in uh, T. Taylor's seven-figure fiction. Oh, everyone should read that. That is an amazing book. Yes, um, that's why I wanted to mention it as well. So, So one of the universal fantasies that she mentions is like the entering of a world previously unknown to you, right? We like it's 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 everywhere. And there's ways to write someone being out of touch and needing help convincingly. But please, please don't write a woman as clueless and helpless just because she's a woman, right? Just because she raises kids or loves wearing skirts, anything that has to do with her gender. Yeah, I actually have read a couple books lately that did the damsel in distress trope really well, but it was the guy that was in distress and stuck. Sometimes yeah. it was a girl that rescued him. Sometimes it was a guy, but it had nothing to do with gender. It had everything to do with the situation seriously got him stuck. But the authors worked really hard to make it reasonable that they were stuck. Yeah. So not just because they're like, you know, just flailing because of oh, a big dress God. and I can't walk down the stairs. <laughs> yes. Exactly. All right. Number four. Yeah. So the token girl or the token woman who often shows up as the woman with no female friends. If you're going to include this in the plot, really, really make it make sense for the plot. All too often, it's too obvious there's a woman there just because the writer needed a woman in there somewhere, uh, whether to be be able to show that, yes, see, I included a woman in my story. Or, you know, because she's just there for eye candy. Can we get some examples? I actually, I'm going to, I have an example that shows you how you can do it well. Because I always immediately think of Hermione Granger, you know, from the Harry Potter series. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a lot I can critique about that character and other female characters in the series. I mean, and the series as a whole. But this for me is more of a, this is how you can have it make sense example. Because Hermione, you know, just 
because of how she's behaving in school, like her character, like one of her character flaws, because of that, she doesn't actually make any friends, female or male. Not at first, at least, yeah. No, so to me, it's not weird that she strikes up a friendship with the two boys who come to her aid. Their friendship is forged when she's in trouble and they come to her rescue, which gives us a couple of great clues and red herring. So it's actually that whole rescue is really important for the plot. It sets other things up besides her character being entered. It's integral. Yes. So, of course, there's a lot to be said about Hermione needing to be rescued, especially since she's better at magic. But as far as her friendship with Ron and Harry is concerned, that actually makes sense to me, like how their friendship came to be. It's very simple, it's effective, and it makes her less of a, shoot, I, yeah, I need to put a girl in there somewhere. Do you have any, like, don't do this examples? The token girl is often, often also used as the cool girl, as in cool from the, the macho sex-driven male gaze kind of cool definition. Michaela from the Transformers movies comes to mind. She's pretty much the only girl that spends much time on screen. And she's presented as cool without um, because she knows how to work on cars and all of that. And she hangs with the guys. But like Raha Matruza says in the Tide newspaper points out, the cool girl has her limit. She can't pose as a threat to her man and she must always do what he wants her to do. She doesn't have her own title because she's merely a supporting character. She is complicit and never gets upset with her man, end quote. Michaela is, as you watch the film, she's all femme, but without all the hassles and cluelessness of the dumb blonde trope. It's pretty damaging to set up boys to think that that's the girlfriend of their dreams. Um, Additionally damaging to hold that up as sort of a model to young women of what they need to be to get male attention. The Mm -hmm. book and the film Gone Girl has this amazing two-minute dialogue, which you can find on YouTube, referenced by Materza in our article. I went and watched it because I hadn't seen Gone Girl yet, and now I kind of need to see it. Um, But this two-minute dialogue by one of the characters in this, uh, the the Gone Girl film, um, about the problem of the cool girl trope. And the first part can be summed up by explaining that these cool girls become whatever the men want them to be and are interested in whatever their men are interested. And it just goes from there. So the the twist on that trope that is sometimes the super hot yet gets guy stuff character actually pushes men to be much more macho. Like there's the the cool girl and then there's the, the girl that is so macho and the only girl around that she's shaming other men for not being as mask as her like drinking as much as her, doing as many drugs, shooting or driving as fast. She's shaming men to be more um, and to to take more risks. Yeah, she's she's that female that enforces toxic masculinity. And there can be really dire consequences for the men around her if they don't rise to the challenge. Yeah. Um, So there's... There's a really good breakdown of this trope in Bitch Media. Um, The name of the article is Name That Trope. She's hot. She's cool. She's one of the guys. Um, And I would say just go read that if you want to read into that more deeply. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a good one, yeah. All right, trope five, to seriously consider or avoid. What do you got? The straight up virgin or whore dichotomy. That can happen with female characters. Uh, sometimes when you're reading, women are either like the Jezebel or the Virgin Mary, mother of God type, you know, to pure for this world. Yeah, goodness, cool. I do believe this trope is dying. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's writers are actually advice against having, because uh, when you're reading it. Yes, but when you're writing, and this is especially sort of like the pure type of, of, of character, female character, we all know the characters need flaws, right? That's yes. like one of the main things. Like, otherwise, your character is not going to be interesting. I would say that it's in our canon enough that we should still watch out for all these versions creeping into our writing. Like, we do How have they affect us. I recently read this novel. Uh, it's called I Kissed Shara Wheeler by Casey McQuiston, um, who's also the author of Red, White, and Royal Blue, which is really popular right now. It's a really, I, I recommend it. And she actually plays with this a lot in that her female protagonist is obsessed with proving to the rest of the world that the perfect, proper, modest, selfless Christian girl in her class is actually anything but. 
So if you like super queer books by non-binary authors that criticize a certain kind of hypocritical Christianity, I, I highly recommend reading this one. Okay. Yeah, I think you'd love it. I also think you would love, if maybe you've read it already, Red, White and Royal Blue. No, I haven't. Oh, I do. I mean, you, you'll read it in like 12 hours. It's, it's a really <laughs> fast pace. It's really fun. Okay. I believe it's your turn for some tropes because I've done my five. You were going to limit me, so. Well, you're very nice to let me limit you. But I know you don't want to be recording all night. <laughs> yes, I do. I need sleep at some point. All right, my turn. Okay. Again, in no particular order because I couldn't even categorize them in order. There's so many. I'm going to go with pointing out the danger of writing a female character who is depicted as strong or competent, but has zero female friends. So a bit of a twist in what we were just talking about. All her role models, guides, teachers, companions, and confidence are men. This is an issue in real life for women. And yes, it does happen. And if you want to include that, perhaps think of it as a flaw, a handicap, or something of the like. I really appreciate how the show Firefly handled their strong female characters, partic particularly Zoe Washburn. She's muscle on the ship and very, very much a kick-ass character. I mean, like the kind that kicks doors in with her steel-toed boots. There's mm -hmm. no lace in her suitcase, but she still has female friends, even female friends who are hyper-femme, like Inara, who has an innate femme sexuality. Another really good show would be Violet Evergarden. The main character, Violet, is used as a child soldier and bonds with her handler on the warfront, a man who dies in battle, the same one that disables her severely. But her healing process includes men and women, and she makes strong bonds with both, despite being a very strong military background character herself. Actually, the writing on that show is amazing, but bring a handkerchief for tears, you will need it. I haven't watched either, but I'm grateful for these examples because I can't stand books or other media like that, you know, where all the people the female protagonist looks up to are men. That is definitely something that I explicitly, like I'm, I'm very explicit about uh, changing that in my own books, right? Like having all the, all, the, all the things, all the roles that you often see are done by men, like the mentor role and stuff like that. I purposefully put a female character in that role um, just to shake things up because we want proper female role models right like that is what we are looking for yeah okay, what's, yeah what's it your can number be very rich some it can be very real some of us grew up without female role models that we were conscious of so yes of course with, yeah yeah so but that's like again like i'm very much of the like write the world you want to live in uh Right, the world you want to see in the future. Okay, what's your what's your number two? Okay, my number two is women who dislike everything them, and it's considered a positive trait. So the writing itself laud her or applaud her for disliking her own gender or anything to do with her own gender. Mm -hmm. You can totally write a character who is this way, um, and I kind of have at points but I would strongly caution against it being idealized. That's basically trying to androcize a female character and points to self-hate. Not even most male characters are written to hate everything then. If you do have a character like this, and I will totally agree these people exist in real life, it's probably trauma. Don't, don't, don't worship or glamorize women who turn their back on everything to do with their gender but also don't revile her for it. Um, and to be clear, I'm talking about a woman, not a trans man seeking their true identity. That is different. Yeah, that is totally different. And it should be treated as such as well. And I'm glad you mentioned women turning back um, on, on their gender, because that's also something we see a lot, right? Both in real life as in fiction, whether it's women trying to like overcome their feminine traits to get ahead, right? To become one of the boys. Uh, because mm -hmm. yeah a lot of our the way our society is set up it pushes cannot, in that direction yeah it, it pushes them to give up on certain traits that are considered uh, female feminine or we see it in women who sacrifice their female peers to get what they want right so this is definitely something to 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 consider so what's your number three a strong female character who's depicted as strong because she hates men and stands up to them all the time 
Um, there's a line that can be crossed here from writing to care who stands up for herself and her friends and allies and the defenseless and, and those that don't have defenses of their own, but is so hyper reactive and triggered that she's now become a bully. So sloppy writing can fall back on this trope and say, look, strong female character. She's always fighting guys off or fighting guys or picking a fight with guys. And I look at it and say, oh my gosh, traumatized female character. This woman has some issues and I sympathize with her, but mm, that's not <laughs> the way to solve them. She needs to see someone. <laughs> yeah, like I have a lot of compassion for it. Uh, I mean, it's, it is though the definition of a bully, someone who has trauma or insecurity or distrust to the point that they need to pick on others to feel safe or better about themselves. A girl doesn't have to give up on men to be strong or come into herself. Men can and often are allies, mentors, and support. So let's not lie to ourselves, our female readers, our boys, um, the men in our lives about how gender interactions have to look for women to be a fully realized individual. Yeah, we need that healthy middle ground, right? Like boys should have mentors, role models, and so on who are of all genders, and girls should too. And side-linking into all of this, there's absolutely a difference between being coldly professional for safety and being an actual bitch or a bully. Agreed. And I will admit part of my growing process in my teens, 20s has been finding that middle ground. Um, a bully will be aggressive, assertive in some ways. Think hunting type behavior. Coldly professional behavior will draw lines, hold boundaries. It's different. And coldly professional behavior will not really cater to non-business wish fulfillment through others. So one might still get called a bitch by being coldly professional. It's happened, probably even happened to me. Um, definitely happened to my friends, but that doesn't actually make a character a bitch. It just means someone's mad at them. <laughs> yes, and I, I do think it happens like women get to, get to be called a bitch quickly. Yeah, right? I, I didn't yeah. actually- so Any kind of boundary. Yeah, I didn't actually include all of that data, but I did actually find data that when I was researching these tropes. Yeah. So do you have a number four or do you want to move on to our next topic? No, let's move on to, um, let's look at some narrative pitfalls because uh, I'm looking at the time. And I think we should keep going. Okay, so one thing very common, especially in older novels is, although you still see it, is that stories led by female protagonists often rely on male intervention. The plot only moves forward because of a male character's action or words. Without this male character somehow intervening, the story comes to a halt. However, this narrative structure is so common that I'm always on the lookout for it in my own work because I sometimes repeat that very same narrative structure. Like, I wrote a completely passive character female yeah, character your lead right my lead was very so so i completely completely found myself sort of you know drowning in this particular narrative structure and it's not like so it's not just male writers who write stories like this right it's women writers too because this is what we've been reading forever and ever and ever so we need to be really really aware of this this takes me right back to what i said before before your character better make decisions quickly followed by and they have to do something the verb there being in all caps exactly let your female protagonist keep the ball rolling herself she really doesn't have to wait around for a guy to come save her or shake things up for her right and another thing i want to bring up is when in like action adventure story so this is another narrative structure pitfall that i see it are only the kick-ass women who get to display any kind of emotion. There are two reasons why I consider this to be problematic. First of all, it is as if men don't get emotional beyond responding in an aggressive way. And let's not forget that aggression is an expression expression of emotion, right? Like we will talk about this this in the second in the second part of, of, of this episode, that emotional is something we attribute to women, but aggressive behavior is emotional behavior. Um, but the second reason why it's problematic is it's as if women need to show they are capable of soft, touchy feelings because otherwise they aren't real women. And I bring this up as a narrative structure problem is because what you often see is that the narrative slows down 
so that these women can have their little breakdown moment to prove that they're actually not a monster and they have feelings inside, right? And I've seen this in the work that I've edited and I'm glad authors usually change it after I point it out. Mm. Yeah. So what are some of the narrative structure challenges that you see writers needing to examine? Sexual assault as a prop propeller in some instances is very problematic in a number of ways. I've seen it done well. I've written it. It's going to appear in literature, and I don't think we need to not write about it. For many of us, men, women, and non-binary writers, it's cathartic. Mm -hmm. And the same for many readers, actually. But there are certain ways that is sometimes done that I would suggest avoiding. For example, presenting a sexual assault as the means of, quote, toughening a character up. Assault doesn't toughen anyone up. It makes walls go up, though. Don't mistake those walls for strength. That's a defense. Getting back up after being violated and injured, that's where healing growth happened in a storyline. So one way this trope can play out in a negative way is if the moral of the story can be read as by the end of the story as it needed to happen. The sexual assault needed to happen as if the perpetrator did the assaulty a favor by forcing them through this crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know examples, yeah. Yeah, so I would say, again, this is one way of like, don't avoid the subject matter. It's in our lives. We write about it, we need to write about it but it's the way you write about it that matters. Yeah. The second way I see sexual assault being written badly would be examples like Anne Rand's Fountainhead, where the female secondary character, Dominique, is forcibly raped by the hero of the story, Rourke. Now, some will say that this text should be read as symbolism. Personally, I don't care to make that distinction. The plot plays on the idea of a frigid woman needing to be overcome by a passionate man who cannot control himself before the object of his desires, and that he is as much a victim as the one he is forcing himself upon. This narrative also falls under the, quote, it needed to happen justification category of stories. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like that just makes all my hair sort of like stand up. Um, if you're writing about sexual assault, which yes, it is totally legit because it happens a lot and everywhere. I want to recommend one of Salt and Sage's uh, Soul and Sage books incomplete guides on the topic and we'll include a link in the show notes it's called how to write about sexual assault yeah and you can go back we talked to the CEO of Salt and Sage in season two yes so my second narrative issue is a bit related one might call it women as a victim to motivate a man without recognition of her own tragedy her own story her own agency and personhood this one is nuanced because there are plenty of times someone of any gender will die, become ill, be harmed, hurt, or impacted, and the main character or characters will be motivated to action because of that. For example, in Black Lightning, the superhero TV show, the superhero Black Lightning is motivated to return to his vigilante ways because of threats made against his daughters. However, I wouldn't say that this is an issue because both of his daughters and his wife are fully explored characters with agency, and the effects of the events around them are grappled with in their character arcs as much as their father's character arc. They aren't just pieces that are in the plot to motivate him. They are characters and individuals that he only he not only fights for, but sometimes fights with, is answerable to, and also they are not re represented as dainty virgin sacrifices in his plot line. Yeah, but I think that is like exactly such an important distinction to make, right? And we've said this, that when we say don't do it like this that's exactly what we're saying like you can write about it but don't write it like this right because this is where it, it's problematic and there are better ways to write about these things you just have to understand the pitfalls involved so you can avoid falling face first into them like there's no need to avoid them on the contrary we need better stories about all of our lived experiences so if you are writing anything that might be potentially I, I wouldn't say controversial is the right term but but maybe maybe sensitive just google it just look it up online like how have people written it what went wrong do does anyone have any pointers and and yes as a side note when you're reading stuff you don't have to take everything face value right because 
in the research for this, like you've come across some articles that you were like, ah, no, we don't agree with the advice in these articles. You sent me one real quick. You didn't have a chance to read it. And I read it and I was like, why did you send this to me? This is no, this is completely no. Yes. So when you are reading or when you're doing your research, you know, be sensible um, about, about what you're reading. Uh, and, and double check with yourself whether it actually makes sense or goes against what you know yeah. goes against your your gut. Um, but there's one more thing I think we should cover quickly. It feels like basic character and and plot construction, but our strong female characters, like I talked about this before, like about the flaws, like they need to make mistakes. Like that, you're a strong character does not mean that you're a perfect character. Yes, 100%. Mistakes are necessary. It's good storytelling. It allows characters to be relatable. We all make mistakes in real life and making mistakes is part of the push-pull that drives the plot forward. Yeah. So I want to bring something in here. You just said strong does not mean perfect. And I want to expand on that. Let's think about strong. It's a rather mask-aligned word in our vocabulary, and we often associate it with competent. I was taking a walk with my husband, Louie, recently. Like I said before, he also writes books and he enjoys making and playing video games. So we, we talk about story and plot and structure a lot together. And I asked him what he likes in his female characters that he reads or plays. And he surprised me just a little. He said, I identify with competent girls, which had me thinking how many girls are written by men or women as competent versus men written as competent? Which leads me to another thought partially brought on by the book Invisible Women about how perhaps competencies of women aren't recognized by men or women as competencies, as strengths. For example, I can cook all day in the kitchen yet feel like a failure because I wasn't working on the next book, the next podcast episode, earning money or some other thing. Totally ignoring the fact that I just took 20 pounds of fresh produce of various kinds from beans and wheat and whole tomatoes and anise and made 30 plus meals with my bare hands. But it doesn't feel that good because, you know, it's just homework. It's just something that I could do at the age of 12. Come on. You think I'd progress beyond things I managed to do in middle school. I don't know about you, but I know that this lingering thought was reinforced by the books I've read over the years. The strong female character is often the one that escapes the kitchen from Cinderella to Sarah Crew and the Little Princess. Well, I absolutely agree that we need to rethink what competent means and who gets to be it, right? It has a lot to do with professionalization, I think. I mean, it's always puzzled me how cleaning windows was seen as a women's job, but in, in, in the Netherlands anyway. But professional window cleaners, again, at least in the Netherlands, they tend to be men. Like same this. here. Yeah, okay. So the same they make goes really for, good money too. Yes, and the same goes for women cooking meals at home and chefs in restaurants or any other skill that women tend to be taught while growing up, which suddenly becomes a man's job when it's done, quote-unquote, professionally. There's a Dutch phrase that's said when a kid comes in all dirty from playing outside or spilling food all over themselves, that translates to, well, you know, mama knows how to do laundry. But I don't think I've ever read about or seen a woman run a dry cleaners on TV. I think I have once, just once. Although I have seen it happen in real life. So yeah, we really need to think, how are we writing competency for our women? And I'm not just talking to men here, really. I'm talking to women writers too. How are we talking about ourselves? Do we recognize competencies in our female characters in ways, in beyond ways that we recognize competency in men? Which definitions are we using for both? And are we recognizing the same competencies in men and comparing them? How are we looking at power dynamics? I don't wanna keep talking about respect both, but you know, both are different. Men are stronger. Strong is not the end all be all. Great physical strength is not relegated to a significant portion of the population, even among men. Some are stronger than others. Doesn't mean yeah. that any of them can't be competent or a strong character as we write them. Yes, but also there are lots of women who are stronger than the men in their lives. That's just. Yeah, I've out chopped wood with guys many times <laughs> that's my point right so that is that's that's just for me the main reason we need to rethink this and uncouple it from masculinity right but it also makes me think of, of Moana or Vianna as I said like the Disney film like there was a real balance of quote-unquote strong characters in that work 
and they needed each other's types of strengths, right? It was not just about physical strength. It was all kinds of strengths involved. And they needed that, those strengths combined to, um, well, yeah, to heal the world, basically. Basically. That's a really good example. I, when I think about that movie and how the characters work together, I think of like putting a breaking rope together and it's stronger in the end. I wasn't left with a taste in my mouth that Moana had left the kitchen. Um, everyone was involved in that community from her dad down to the chicken in making everything that people needed. She needed to understand that she has a role on her island. Like that's the whole, like the song, right? Mm -hmm. But she can have both. Yeah. Right. Everybody does their part, but that part includes both doing what we would consider like productive labor and reproductive labor, how it is called, right? Which is often the difference between paid work and unpaid work. It was woven together so seamlessly that by the end, it seemed to be the same thing. I think that this balance is something that we need to strive for in yeah. all the settings that we can. There are some settings that, of course, there's restrictions of the world as they stand, especially if we're writing historical, if we're writing in certain countries, if we're writing within certain religions. But we can dig a little deeper, even in these situations, and showcase different kinds of strengths, capacities, and also setting up the struggle to allow characters who want to prove themselves in ways that maybe their society doesn't want them to prove themselves. Yeah. A lot of readers uh, have talked to me as they go back to Jane Austen as a writer who worked within the limitations and wrote fully fleshed out, empowered individuals for her time and circumstance that she was writing in and where she set her her characters. All right, so we will come back with the second yes. part of this episode on, I believe, July 1st, we'll release it. Yes, part two of this episode, we will talk about words and descriptions to avoid. We'll also talk about the physicality of the female body or, you know, knowing how the female body works. Uh, we'll have some really fun slash tragic examples there. We will talk about point of view issues. And we'll also give some, some examples um, of writing done well. All right. So I'm looking forward to that. As always, if you have any comments, thoughts, uh, resources you think that we should include for everyone or questions, please write us at doingdiversityinwriting at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. All right. So until next month, take care, everyone. for joining us music for this show was written and produced by eric mills if you found this episode helpful please rate and review on your favorite podcast app and spread the word so other writers can find us too to get our doing diversity and writing toolkit which includes all bonus material from season one go to representationmatters.art that's dot a-r-t here you will also find our episode show notes Happy writing and see you next episode.